Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, Angels, a visible and invisible history. How the built environment made 20th century Britain. The story of a brilliant U boat commander who was tried for treason because he was against the Nazis. Emperor Nero and the fire that ended a dynasty. And finally, to end the show, we look at a new spy thriller that explores the relationship between a leading Nazi and the Duke of Kent during the Second World War. Now, last week, we played you back our show on the forgotten hero of the 1916 Rising, Thomas Kent. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with a history of angels. A new book asks the question, what exactly are angels and why have so many in different times and contexts around the globe believed in them? What is their history and role in the great faiths and beyond their walls? Are angels something real, a manifestation of divine concern or part of the poetry of religion? And can they continue to illuminate a deeper truth about human existence and the cosmos? Well, all big questions there and all explored in this new book, Angels. Angels, a history published in paperback by Hodder and Stoughton. It costs ten ninety nine sterling, so about thirteen euro. The author is Peter Stanford, and Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, hello, nice to be back. Uh, let's start with this really interesting poll that took place in the United Kingdom in twenty sixteen. One in ten Britons claimed to have experience of the presence of an angel. One in three believed in a guardian angel but then only I think one in four actually said that they were uh, fairly or strongly religious so you had more people believing in angels than were believing in God. Isn't that extraordinary because obviously those of us brought up in the uh, the Christian tradition and the Catholic tradition know that uh, angels are God's messengers. The word angel in Hebrew so in Judaism means messenger and if you look back over uh, two, three, four thousand years, angels' role has always been in Hinduism, in uh, in Zoroastrianism, in the Egyptian uh, Egyptian religions, and in Judaism. It's been that of God's messengers. And here we are suddenly in an age where we're, we're turning our back on God and we're embracing angels, or more of us believe in angels than believe in God. Now, we could obviously blame that on the church, uh, which is, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's mileage to be made in that. But I think it also tells us something about, um, it's that word that everyone likes to use at the moment and no one defines very clearly, spirituality. So we're constantly given these these figures that tell us that not many people go to church anymore, therefore religion is dead. And yet all these people are interested in angels, which rather suggests that religion with a small r, not in an institutional sense, but in a personal sense, is absolutely alive and kicking. And there is this kind of sense that maybe the Christian churches themselves had problems with angels, that they didn't want to appear to be too, uh, talking about them too much in case they might appear ridiculous, so that in a way they've also toned down uh, any mention of angels. Well, it's an odd thing to say, and I'm sure many people listening to this won't have realized that uh, that the Catholic Church, the Anglican churches, the Christian churches in general are trying to get modern. Uh, because it sometimes doesn't, they don't seem very modern to us in terms of meeting the world. Uh, but by their own lights, they are trying to be uh, more more modern and, again, by their own lights, less medieval. And so, so what they think is that by talking about angels, in a sense, you're talking about something that, that was absolutely the one of the dominant subjects in the medieval age. So in the 13th century, 
uh, you start getting uh, universities founded, Bologna, Paris, and then Oxford across Europe. In Paris, in the uh, 13th, 12th, 13th century, the main subject, the most popular subject was angelology, where they looked at angels. And they were looking, they were, as Thomas Aquinas, very famously, there's that phrase about Thomas Aquinas, how many angels dancing on a pinhead. Um, he didn't actually say it. It's someone else um, criticizing him later, but it's what he's associated with. And so this, this whole idea of running through medieval Christianity right through to the beginning of the 16th century, through to the early modern period, was where angels kind of dominated in lots of ways. They were one of the ways by which um, individual believers accessed God alongside saints as well. We were meant to kind of follow the example of saints. The difference being, of course, that saints were saints had once been human, but are now up in heaven. Angels were never human. At the moment in the Old Testament, uh, where God says, let there be light at the very beginning of Genesis, uh, according to St. Augustine, that was when he created angels, because uh, they, they are light. So this, this, uh, this whole kind of link go, goes through that this is how, in the medieval age, this is how you kind of access God. This is how you access God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness. It is through angels. It is through saints. And who, who controls angels and saints? Who says what they are? Who allows you to access them? It is the church, all part of the structure in the medieval age. Fast forward from the early modern period, so from the Reformation through the 17th century scientific enlightenment, through the 18th century, you know, general enlightenment, the French uh, encyclopedists and all of those people. And the church thinks, okay, well, if we're going to get people to take us seriously anymore, we can't sound too medieval. So let, let's play down a bit on the angels. Now, that, that's, a, that's a general rule. There are times when it is different. I mean, the Victorians, certainly in Britain, and I, I suspect in Ireland as well, were pretty, uh, pretty interested in angels, particularly around dead children. They thought of dead children as angels all the time. Um, but angels have really been going out of fashion for quite a long time. And, and to a certain extent, it is the institutions who've been driving them out of, out of, uh, out of fashion. And if you look through, and, and I always think an easy measure of this is to look through recent papal pronouncements sort of over the last 20 or 30 years, angels are mentioned very, very little. Sometimes people say, you know, they're as good as an angel or they're as wonderful to look at as an angel or whatever. But there's no specific theology around them. It's all rather gone. Um, and it seems to me there's, there's a danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. I mean, yes, the, the angels were kind of used for all sorts of arguments and all sorts of purposes um, by the institution, but they had, one of the reasons that they, they were so popular in the medieval period wasn't simply because the church told people to believe in them. It was because they appealed to people. The idea that you have a guardian angel, someone watching over you, moreover, someone watching over you unconditionally. I mean, I grew up in Catholic Liverpool in the 1970s. Uh, our Catholicism then was still pretty traditional. Um, and, you know, there was no suggestion that if you missed mass on Sunday or had an impure thought or whatever else it was we were told not to do, that your guardian angel wouldn't still be there with you. And I think as people have moved away from kind of rule, rules-based, punitive uh, religious institutions, they've continued to find angels attractive as a way of accessing, well, it may be God, it may be the divine, it may be the sense that there is more to the world than meets the eye. And you have a lovely name check and reference to the famous Robbie Williams song about angels. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. <laughs> and 
you know, in a way, the lines from that about offering protection and a yep. lot of love and affection, yep. you know, in a way that gets to the heart of the story. That's what people want. They want the, that sense of protection with the guardian angel. They want, they're looking for love. They're looking for affection. And that, uh, that's the attractiveness of angels. It is, absolutely. And in, in the book, I, I tell a little story. Um, so, just said, I grew up in Catholic Liverpool in the 70s. My mum was disabled. Uh, she had multiple sclerosis. She was a wheelchair user. And um, at the time, uh, the British government, uh, in its wisdom, gave um, disabled drivers a kind of three, it was like a three-wheel chariot. It's like a Reliant Robin, uh, but without the styling. They're called invercars. Was there ever an uglier word in the English language than invalid? Because actually, if you say it slowly, it means invalid. So anyone who's disabled is invalid. But anyway, um, and my mum had one of these. And what you were meant to do when you got into it was you pulled your wheelchair in with you. So you got in, got on the seat, slid the seat over, pulled the wheelchair in. My mum never pulled the wheelchair in. She used to leave the wheelchair on the drive of the house and she'd go around the local shops and people would serve her through the car window. And my dad, who was sceptical, pessimistic, let's say, kept saying to her all the time, oh, you know, one day you're going to come back to the house and that wheelchair will be gone. And she just looked at him and said, oh, don't be stupid, Reg. My guardian angel's watching over it. And we just believed it. I mean, it's, it, was, it was absolutely part of that, that, you know, the, the, your guardian angel was there. Billy Connolly tells a story in his, well, when he was still doing stage shows. He used to talk about having, um, he grew up in a Catholic home, unhappily, in, um, in Scotland. He said uh, he grew up with angels. He said uh, when he drives around or when he was driving around looking for parking places, he used to have um, an angel figure on the dashboard of his car. And he said, you know, I'm not sure if I believe in angels, but let's just say every time I'm looking for a parking space and I touch the guardian angel on the dashboard, I find a parking space. So it is, it is kind of woven into the fabric of us almost. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, and as you show, it's, it's part of the poetry of, of religion in a way that it's, uh, it's, it's something that people maybe can't really put into words, but that they understand instinctively. Absolutely. Um, uh, I think if you, um, I mean, it, one of the things the book set me doing, I mean, like the book goes back through all religions and it shows that these angel-like figures are part of all religions. Um, but it made me go back and read particular bits of the Old Testament, um, uh, where obviously these ideas then came through from Judaism to Christianity. And one of the most powerful bits, and I don't know whether people remember this, but it's a bit about Jacob's ladder, the ladder going up between, and these are all in Genesis. It's when, um, it's when Jacob and his brother are having a terrible row and angels intervene there. And, um, you know, that image of angels going up and down a ladder between heaven and earth, it's in some ways, I mean, you know, when was that written? That was written uh, 1500 BC, 1000 BC, so, you know, 3000 years ago. Um, but it still kind of chimes now, not particularly because we think we see angels climbing up and down ladders, although some people, the one in 10, may, the, some of those one in 10 you mentioned at the beginning, may have seen it in those terms. But we, we, we still have a sense, I mean, at its simplest, a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves religious yearn for an afterlife. And part of the yearning for afterlife is the idea of, of, uh, of reunion with dead loved ones. And so we have this sense that in front of this very material world in front of us, which, you know, the scientific enlightenment and the enlightenment and the rise of science, and science, of course, is absolutely brilliant. It's come up with a vaccine uh, within less than 12 months to, to sort, try and sort us out of the coronavirus crisis. So science is brilliant. I'm not criticizing science, but science doesn't have all the answers. It still can't tell us why good people die young. 
It still can't tell us why children are snatched from us at an earlier age. It still can't explain why the suffering in the world. And I think when people are confronted with that, or they're aware of it in their life, um, that image of, of this link between heaven and earth, this, of, of these angels going up and down, it is just that sense that I think a lot of us have at different moments in our life that you might call it transcendent, you might call it numinous, you might call it the other, you might call it whatever, but things happen in our lives that we can't quite explain. And it's just this sense that there is another dimension to the world. And angels absolutely, A, represent that other dimension um, in that, you know, theologically speaking, angels reside in heaven and come down to earth. But they also, in that image of the ladder going up and down, represent the link that we have. There is some sort of link between us and this other dimension. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us tonight. The book is called Angels, A History, published in paperback by Hodder and Stoughton. It costs 10.99 sterling, so about 13 euro. The author, Peter Stanford. And Peter, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book provides a history of 20th century Britain told through the rise, fall and reinvention of six different types of urban space. The industrial estate, shopping precinct, council estate, private flats, shopping mall and suburban office park. Sam Weatherall shows how these spaces transformed Britain's politics, economy and society, helping forge a mid-century developmental state and shaping the rise of neoliberalism after 1980. The book is called Foundations, How the Built Environment Made 20th Century Britain. It's published in Hardback by Princeton University Press and costs about €33. Euro. The author is Sam Weatherill. And Sam, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Patrick. It's great to be here. Can we begin with this idea that urban planners had that we usually think of it as maybe that they're just concerned about, you know, the, the, the area itself rather than having some grand master plan and vision behind it all. But in this period, many of them believe that they could make a, a huge, massive, positive contribution to society as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, these days, I think we're quite pessimistic about the idea that um, human beings can be completely remade from scratch by urban space. But the idea that if we were to plan towns and cities in certain ways, we could create new kinds of people and maybe even uh, new kinds of communities, new kinds of politics, new kinds of economics. But this was very much what um, a cohort of mid 20th century British urban planners uh, and actually urban planners across the world believed. Um, so, you know, just to take a few examples of this, um, when building council housing or, or, or basically public housing um, in, in mid 20th century Britain, um, public housing estates, there was a, a huge amount of concern that uprooting people from working class slums and depositing them in these newly built spaces would create sort of atomized, individualized, lonely people. So urban planners believe that if they could get the space right, if they could have the right combination of courtyards, uh, walkways, right combination of playgrounds, of, um, you know, uh, if they could get the physical fabric of the space right, they could solve this problem and inculcate new kinds of communities uh, among uh, the working class former slum dwellers that used to live um, uh, in other kinds of places. So, you know, or to take another example, um, urban planners believed, you know, for a short period of time that um, 
the, the problems of, of uh, British industrial capitalism after the Depression, the problems of the decline of export industries, of the regional inequalities of British, um, uh, of British industry that had left large parts of, of the country, the northeast of England, South Wales, Scotland, with very high rates of unemployment, could simply be solved if new types of factories, with new types of spaces, developing um, workers in particular ways could be built in these places. So you could build these trading estates that, that could build spaces. So, so in some senses, urban planning became kind of a shortcut to solving a whole series of social problems and, and a, a, a way of trying to think about how society, the economy, politics could be remade from top to bottom. And it's fascinating as well when we talk about shopping malls because I would have assumed that uh, this was some ingenious capitalist who had come up with the idea, but instead it was actually actually a communist refugee to the United States. Yeah, absolutely. This is um, uh, a wonderful story uh, that, um, uh, you know, that, that, that I talk about a lot in my book. I'm not the first person to write about this, but certainly um, uh, it's a story that is very easy to forget if you're living uh, in Europe, I think. Um, uh, so basically, um, there was a, uh, a Jewish communist refugee, a man named Victor Gruen, who lived in um, Austria, fled to the United States in 1938. Um, and Victor Gruen was... Um, you know, he, he was interested in um, trying to solve some of the problems of Californian sprawl in suburbia, right? So he was worried about freeways. He was worried about cheap tracked housing in the middle of the 20th century. And he wanted to build institutions that would prevent the kind of atomization of what he saw as a sort of free market, uh, decentralized world. He wanted to, um, uh, you know, to, to sort of rein in and control uh, suburbanization and, and free market politics. Uh, and the solution he came up with was to basically weaponize or, or take control of the expansion of the automobile and the huge rise in car ownership and new road building and freeways that was happening during this period and build um, shopping malls. Uh, and, you know, he imagined shopping malls would become not just places of shops, but centers of artistic and cultural life. His early shopping centers in the American Midwest, in um, uh, Adena, Minnesota, um, uh, you know, and, and the Southdale Center um, outside of Detroit, uh, you know, were, were places where, um, you know, uh, philharmonic orchestras would play, places where art was exhibited, places where the community would assemble, places where shopping was maybe the least important and least significant element of it. Um, but of course, you know, what shopping, the meaning of shopping malls changed quite quickly uh, and shopping malls became very quickly associated with sort of cheap track suburbia, you know, depressing music, uh, you know, they became standardized, brightly lit kind of, uh, you know, depressing kind of places. Um, and Victor Gruen very quickly lost control of his vision. He actually fled back to Austria uh, in the late 1960s, um, uh, and, and uh, you know, to his horror, found that his childhood second home in Utin in Germany had been turned into a shopping mall, demolished and turned into a shopping mall. So there's a sort of tragic quality to Victor Gruen's life that he had this extraordinary vision that came from you know this, this really uh, extraordinary 20th century life that he lived as, as a refugee from the Nazis, um, uh, only to find that vision was co-opted by property speculation um, and, and suburbia. So, so yeah, it's a really fascinating 
fascinating story. And the way these planners then in Britain thought that they can make the city fairer and more equal and have less cars, whereas as we know and as we've seen, uh, the opposite really happens. Yeah, there's a huge irony that, you know, a lot of the early shopping mall developers or shopping precinct developers, either people like Victor Gruen in the United States or people like Donald Gibson, who designed the shopping precinct in the middle of Coventry, um, you know, they sort of imagined that um, uh, the great thing about holistically planned shopping developments is they would banish the automobile from public life. You know, uh, the cars would be concentrated in particular types of, uh, of places. There would be, obviously, you would drive to the shopping mall, but then you'd be free from cars. Children could play without being, uh, you know, injured or hit by cars. People could walk around without having to uh, breathe in huge amounts of lead and pollution. Um, you know, this was a, certainly a, it's no coincidence that, that, that the sort of the early idea of a shopping precinct, the sort of centralized, pedestrianized shopping centers that were built across many British cities, was sort of intellectually developed in the 1930s and 1940s, which was a period of time when, you know, there was a kind of regularly, uh, relatively unregulated road network, while a massive expansion of car ownership. Um, and, you know, there were, uh, you know, something like 70,000 road deaths uh, in Britain between 1920 and the late 1930s. So you have this extraordinary sort of new way of dying, this new kind of mortality that was unfolding on Britain's streets every other day. Um, uh, one of the Britain's traffic commissioners likened it to, to like World War One. you know, the trenches of the Somme happening, you know, every day in Britain. So, so in some senses, attempts to try and control how and where people shopped have to be seen within that context. And of course, there's an irony now that we see shopping malls as the ultimate in kind of privatized, car-centered um, living. But, uh, but, but it wasn't always that way. I'm also fascinated by the idea that uh, the decline and the unravelling of council housing in the 1980s was because this view was being uh, put out there that uh, crime was was the fault of the architecture in the urban space and had nothing to do with any of the, the social inequality or poverty. Yeah, so this is a really, um, really important, quite quite subtle, but but incredibly powerful shift that happened in terms of the way we think about crime in the later 20th century. So, so say, for example, Patrick, your bike is stolen. Uh, you know, a traditional criminologist from the mid 20th century period, uh, and, I, and I'm simplifying, you know, uh, a, a little bit here, but, but a, a sort of an orthodox criminologist would ask a whole series of questions about the type of person who might steal your bike. Were they poor? Were they, you know, mentally unwell? You know, the more uh, troubling and conservative element of this might ask, did they belong to a certain kind of race or a certain kind of, um, did they have a certain kind of background? You know, so, so this kind of older view of criminology was very compatible with kind of racism and imperialism. Um, but 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 new a new generation of criminologists would have instead uh, asked a question about your bike instead. They would have asked, was it chained up well? Was it expensive? Was it chained up somewhere that was well lit? Um, and instead became interested in seeing crime not as a problem associated with individual criminals, but as something that was um, uh, something you could iron out of society by reducing the opportunities to commit crime. So the idea is that we're all sort of theoretically criminals, just waiting for the right kind of opportunity. And if you get rid of all the opportunities by you know, designing space in certain kinds of ways, then crime you know, is sort of 
you know, sort of technically written out of society. It's kind of like a little shortcut to uh, to solve problems of crime. And, and and so it's no surprise that when the shift was happening, this was the moment at which urban planning and architecture became central to crime prevention. So people like Oscar Newman in the United States and Alice Coleman in Britain began to argue that large council estates, exactly the kinds of spaces that uh, you know, it, people in the middle of the 20th century believed could create new communities of strangers, exactly these kinds of um, you, you know, spaces that were gonna remake social life. The, these new criminologists began to see these spaces as um, uh, incubators of crime, you know, the, the very public courtyards and walkways and stairwells that were designed to foster community instead were seen to foster mutual suspicion and fear. Um, and instead of a vision of society grounded in communities being remade by space, you had a vision of society of like hostile strangers fighting each other in stairwells and corridors. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it seems quite abstract, right? It seems like, okay, so this is like a, a subtle shift happening in criminology departments. What did this have to do with public housing? Well, the leading exponent of this uh, idea, a woman called Alice Coleman, basically um, uh, was very popular among Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher read her very famous book, Utopia on Trial. Margaret Thatcher invited her to 10 Downing Street in 1988 and basically gave her a ton of money um, and a blank canvas in which to go around Britain redesigning British housing estates. So British housing estates were retrofitted to fit her model of crime prevention, and in many cases were destroyed and were privatized. So, so a lot of the, um, you know, the, this kind of inherent suspicion we have of public housing, of high density housing, um, comes from this kind of subtle intellectual shift that happened in the 1970s and 1980s. This is one of the things I argue in my book. Okay, well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. The book is called Foundations, How the Built Environment Made 20th Century Britain. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. The author is Sam Wetherill. And Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. It was a real pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A brilliant new book tells the story of a German U-boat commander who was sentenced to death for undermining the fighting spirit of his boat and executed in May 1944. The book is called U-Boat Commander Oscar Kusch, Anatomy of a Nazi-Era Betrayal and Judicial Murder. It's published in hardback by the Naval Institute Press and costs around €50. The author is Eric C. Rust. And Eric, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tell our listeners about the story of Oscar Kusch because he seems to have been uh, the ideal skipper. Certainly he was loved by the enlisted men. He was popular, but uh, I suppose maybe not popular with all because uh, the officers who loved Hitler didn't like him. Uh, Yes, very much so. Uh, In fact, uh, he had served before on a different submarine as an executive officer. And there the atmosphere was very different from the one that he would later find on his own boat. Uh, uh, the officers uh, on that first boat were quite open uh, to discuss political subjects or the war or the leadership in the Navy and so on. And they would never have come uh, to the conclusion of reporting uh, Kush's uh, opposition to the regime in any sense. It was on his next boat when, when he was actually the commanding officer uh, that uh, he uh, was assigned uh, 
an executive officer who was uh, a member of the Nazi party, uh, who had a doctorate in law, uh, and along with the engineer on the boat and uh, two other officers, they kind of ganged up on Kush because of his uh, political views that he um, uh, presented rather forcefully, I must say. Um, and it would be they who then reported him later uh, after their second patrol to the authorities, uh, but never the enlisted men uh, with whom he remained very, very popular and uh, uh, who um, would have supported him had they uh, been able to testify at his court-martial. And what's extraordinary is the way that when these charges of sedition and cowardice were brought against him, the, the bureaucracy worked against him. He was abandoned by, by so many people. The, the Grand Admiral sacrificed him for his own, to demonstrate his own loyalty. Like it was incredible the way everything stacked up against him so quickly. So even though they really couldn't prove that he was a coward because it wasn't true, they were still able to convict him. Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, this is a, a big part of, of my research and my story, uh, that so many people had a chance to uh, arrest the uh, uh, march of injustice, if you want, uh, but did not do so for all kinds of reasons, cowardice perhaps, uh, uh, or not wanting be, to be involved, ideological um, ident- identification with the regime, uh, and so on. And uh, uh, this this is uh, the tragic story. They knew they were sacrificing him uh, to uh, to the regime uh, and uh, could have done so much more. Uh, I like to distinguish, and you see that in the subtitle, between the actual betrayal that, of course, is by the officers on his boat uh, who reported him up the chain of command, so to speak, and uh, the actual uh, judicial murder, which was then... Uh, an act of collusion between the higher-up officers uh, in the naval uh, command system and especially in the uh, naval justice system, which was ideologically uh, 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 under uh, the uh, leadership uh, of uh, of the Grand Admiral. Uh, he himself was uh, absolutely loyal to Hitler and uh, um, sentencing Kush uh, to death, um, as he said, what was in, uh, a duty that he could not uh, could avoid because Kush um, uh, had basically um, uh, gotten himself into that situation. Uh, and he wanted to uh, put down an example, uh, which was in itself ridiculous because the U-boat service was uh, perhaps the most loyal service of them all uh, uh, in the Navy. So and had already been so in World War One, uh, So uh, there was really no need to set down an example uh, in Kush's case. And really quite horrible the way it was so difficult after the war to rehabilitate him because so many people wanted to cover up and and have this whitewash for to cover up their own uh, failings and mistakes. Yes, uh, that is one of the uh, the darker dimensions of this whole thing. Um, uh, there was hardly a, a satisfactory denazification effort, especially in the northern part of Germany, in Schleswig-Holstein, the area just south of Denmark. Uh, virtually all of the uh, former naval justice officials uh, found immediately employment in the 
judicial system of that state. Uh, they uh, covered for each other. They uh, sometimes made uh, files disappear. Um, they uh, uh, basically uh, were unreconstructed uh, in uh, their power that they could exercise. And uh, I would argue that uh, the inability to convict uh, Cush's uh, judge, uh, his name was Hargeman, uh, of uh, charges of uh, having violated uh, uh, human rights um, in the Kush case and one other, uh, has everything to do with the collusion of uh, the uh, justice system in that state. Uh, there were two trials and uh, in both cases, he was uh, found uh, not guilty. Well, it's a horrifying story, uh, and I think you do a brilliant job in in, in explaining it and in uh, revealing the many different layers in that story. It's called U-Boat Commander Oscar Cush, Anatomy of a Nazi-Era Betrayal and Judicial Murder. The book's published in hardback by the Naval Institute Press. The author is Eric C. Rust. And Eric, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Okay, it has been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. According to legend, the Roman Emperor Nero set fire to his majestic imperial capital on the night of the 19th of July, 64 AD, and fiddled while the city burned. It's a story that has been told for more than two millennia, and it's likely that almost none of it is true. And the real story is told in a brilliant new book, Rome is Burning, Nero and the Fire that Ended a Dynasty. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs around €22. The author is Anthony Barrett and Tony, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be on. So let's talk about this image then of of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Uh, where does that come from, and how true is it? Well, we're we're told by the three main sources for the fire of Rome. That's the Roman historian Tacitus, the uh, the biographer Suetonius and a late Greek writer called Cassius Dio, all three refer to this story. And Suetonius and Cassius Dio both say that they state as a fact that Nero went up to a tower, he looked out over the city during the, during the Great Fire, and he recited an epic that he had written on the sack of Troy, drawing comparisons between the destruction of Rome and the destruction of Troy. Tacitus, who is the most reliable historian of the period, also tells the story, but he says there was a rumor that this had happened. So he is somewhat more honest than the other two. He simply describes it as a rumor. And I think that what we have to recognize here is that after the fire, after Nero's fall, the the, the dynasty who succeeded him as emperors were very keen to, to denigrate him, to pull down his reputation. And there was a period when historians looked for everything negative that they could find in Nero's character and personality and behavior. And I think it's almost certainly the case that this story was invented, if, if not invented, 
presented in the wrong kind of context because if you think of it, there's nothing really wrong with someone looking over a great disaster like the fire of Rome and being driven to poetry. Um, if, if they're doing it as we use the expression now, we talk about Nero fiddling while Rome burns, if we think, oh, this means he didn't care what was happening to his people, he didn't care about the destruction of the city, he had a way of, uh, of amusing himself while it happened, that's a different matter. But Oppenheimer, after the explosion of the first atomic bomb, uh, recited lines from the Bhagavad Gita, the great Sanskrit, Sanskrit epic. So uh, it's it's not unusual for people to be uh, to be moved to to poetry in the face of great disasters. But I think it's more than likely that the story was a complete fabrication, anyhow. I think the Oppenheimer, uh, Oppenheimer quote was, "I've become death destroyer of worlds." Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, indeed. That's that's it. Yep. The fire had an incredible impact, and both short and long term. And there was massive casualties, huge destruction, but also had uh, led to a financial crisis. There was a currency devaluation. It destroyed the image that people had of Nero and helped bring an end to the dynasty. That the ramifications were really quite extraordinary. Yes, it's um, it's striking. We 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 think of um, of Nero as the as the depraved tyrant, but in fact, up until the time of the fire, he was doing quite well. He was popular with the masses. He at both at home and abroad, um, Rome seemed to be conducting its affairs very very well, and. His behavior perhaps raised a few eyebrows, but on the whole, the the Roman elite, the Roman senatorial classes were willing to put up with that because they were doing quite well during this period. Then we had the fire. As a consequence of the fire, there, there, was, um, there was great economic hardship. A number of fine Roman houses had been destroyed. Many members of the senatorial classes had lost their uh, their property, and there was no simple system of um, of house insurance, of course, in those days. So they would have faced financial ruin on that level. Uh, there was also uh, the need for funds to uh, to rebuild and to invest in social programs, which Nero did for the for the people who had been affected by the uh, the fire. And there was um, there was a devaluation of the silver currency, which was the most important currency of exchange for the Romans, the silver denarius. For the first time, we see uh, we see a, a, a large debasement of the um, the silver coinage, with the the addition mainly of uh, of copper. This led to um, to a great deal of resentment, not so much from the ordinary people, because if taxes and so on were raised, the poor people didn't have money to pay the taxes, but from the elite in particular. And we find from the time of the fire onwards uh, an abrupt change in the mood, the mood among the political classes. We find a series of... Um, of conspiracies, for the first time we get uh, we get actual opposition to Nero 
manifesting itself in an attempt to uh, to assassinate him. So yes, the fire had a serious um, serious impact on the future history of Rome because Nero was the the last of the first dynasty of Roman emperors, the dynasty founded by the adopted son of Julius Caesar, the Emperor Augustus, and there had been a straightforward, more or less straightforward system of succession that you would be of the, uh, of the line of Augustus or married into the, uh, the family of Augustus. With the, with the death of Nero, the suicide of Nero in AD 68, that all changed. And now the empire was more or less up to the highest bidder. Um, whoever could command the most support among Roman troops, to some extent among the Roman senatorial elite, that person could be the, the candidate for the, for the emperorship. So, yes, the, the long-term effects were, were quite dramatic. Why do you think it has had such an extraordinary afterlife in terms of its impact on literature, opera, ballet, film, that there's something about the, the burning of Rome that has inspired artists and writers for centuries? Fire of Rome um, is is a combination of two phenomena. First of all, it is a disaster on a massive scale. Now, of course, you have other great fires, a great fire of um, Chicago, great fire of, um, of, of London. So there have been other great fires uh, throughout history. And probably many of them were more devastating than the great fire of Rome. But the great fire of Rome coincided with one of the more flamboyant of its rulers. So it's the combination of a great disaster plus a truly eccentric and um, flamboyant um, paradoxical ruler in many ways. Uh, Nero was, um, was a figure who was capable of very good judgment. He, a number of his, his, his actions, his legislation, was, uh, was quite inspired. Yet at the same time, he had this, um, had this desire to be a public figure, to be on the public stage. He, he took part, part personally in chariot races. He actually took part in theatrical performances. This was remarkable for a Roman emperor. So he was this colorful, flamboyant personality, um, emperor at a time of the great disaster. And then we throw into the mix the tradition that arose that as a consequence of the fire, Nero blamed the Christians. And this led to what is in effect the first major persecution of the Christians. So, so the great disaster, the flamboyant emperor, and you add to it, because this, of course, has been an important theme throughout, um, throughout history since, the, the persecution of the Christians. Well, thanks so much for joining us tonight, Tony, to talk to us about the burning of Rome. The book is called Rome is Burning, Nero and the Fire that Ended a Dynasty, published in hardback by Princeton University Press. Costs around €22. Euro. The author, Anthony Barrett. And Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed myself a lot.
We'll be back. Bye bye. Bye bye. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In a gripping new spy thriller from the best-selling author of Hitler's Secret, a Cambridge spy must unravel a dangerous mystery that goes all the way to the heart of the Third Reich and the British monarchy. The book is called A Prince and a Spy. It's published in hardback by Zafra and costs 14.99 sterling, so about 18 euro. The author is Rory Clements. And Rory, you're very welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. So let's start with this incident on the 25th of August, 1942. There was a plane crash in Scotland. The King's brother, the Duke of Kent, was killed. What do we know happened? Well, we know that uh, it was uh, supposed to have left uh, Invergordon, which was uh, uh, in the Moray Firth, I believe, uh, the, uh, the naval and air force base. And it was said that it was on its way to Iceland, and then it should have been a pretty regulation flight, and it crashed into quite a low hillside in uh, Caithness, which is about 20 minutes, half an hour away from Invergordon by air. Um, and it shouldn't have happened. They had great pilots on board. Prince himself was a pilot, uh, and it was a, should have been a regulation flight. And then... Uh, very little was made of it at the time. It was thought that the British royal family didn't want anyone to think that they considered their loss greater than anybody else's. Because an awful lot of families were losing people in the war at that time. And it's always been a bit of a mystery because uh, there were sort of strange uh, uh, events surrounding it. You know, there was a later suggestion there was a secret another secret person on board, secretly on board among, apart from those mentioned in the, uh, in, in the official death toll. Uh, there was one survivor known, a guy called Andy Jack, who was the rear gunner, and I think the rear section broke off, and that's how he survived. Uh, so I just, I, I, in my story, I make a suggestion of what might have happened, and uh, I think it's feasible other people might not, but I certainly think it was feasible that uh, he actually wasn't leaving Scotland to go to Iceland. He was actually coming back and something went wrong with the plane. And you send your hero, Tom Wilde, from your other novels off to investigate and to find out what really happened. So let's explore this this theory about Sweden, because uh, the other person in the story is Prince Philip von Hesse. And that, uh, he, he was a cousin of, of, of Prince George, the Duke of Kent. They were both grandsons of, of Queen Victoria. And Prince Philip is uh, I, I found a, fa- a fascinating figure because uh, uh, he had been a lover of Siegfried Sassoon. Soon he uh, went on to become a, a friend and supporter of Adolf Hitler, and and he's a very intriguing uh, uh, real life historical figure. He is intriguing, and in many ways he's been lost to history because if you read uh, most biographies of, of Hitler and of the Second World War, very little mention is made of him. But actually, he was incredibly close to Hitler, apart from maybe Speer and. Uh, one or two other people. He was closest uh, confidant of Hitler for at least four years, from sort of about 1938 to 42, 43, when he fell from grace. Uh, and he was there all the time. He said he had constant access to Hitler. He was with him at the Berghof. He was with him at uh, the uh, Wolf's Lair, you know, his eastern uh, redoubt. And uh, 
yeah, intriguing character who also acted as sort of uh, an official ambassador for him. He said he was married to the king of Italy's daughter, von Hesse, and he would go to Italy and deal with uh, Mussolini on Hitler's behalf. And there are always these rumours that uh, uh, Prince George was found with a, a suitcase, I think, handcuffed to him, that filled with Swedish banknotes. If they had met in Sweden, what do you think they might have been discussing? Well, I, I think if they were going to be talking about anything, they would be talking about possible uh, peace deal between uh, Great Britain and, and Germany. Germany just had the first inklings that things weren't going that brilliantly in the East. You know, they were supposed to have uh, conquered the Soviet Union uh, by the end of 1941, and it hadn't happened. And now they were a bit stuck uh, on the, you know, outside uh, Stalingrad. They hadn't attacked Moscow, and they'd had their first setbacks in North Africa against the British Army as well. They hadn't. They thought it was all going to be easy. And the fact was, of course, that Hitler never really wanted to fight Britain anyway. He thought they could just sort of come to an agreement where Britain would run its empire and Germany would run Europe. Uh, so you can imagine that he would have liked to have put out feelers to the British. Now, Churchill would never have actually agreed to do a deal with Hitler, but he might very well have wanted to know what was going on inside the, the German high command and what their feelings were. He might have quite liked to have a secret meeting with someone like von Hesse, completely unofficial. And there are quite a few people then who would have been uh, quite happy to make sure that never happened and who would have been quite happy to make sure that plane never, never landed safely. Well, Stalin, who was desperate for a, a second front to open in the West, definitely would not have wanted the British to do any sort of deal with, uh, with with Hitler because it would have freed up so many armies from the West to go to the East. It's also interesting the way you you touch on this part of the you know the the, tra- the great tragedy of the the war with uh, what happens with the Holocaust and the courageous efforts of those who who tried to to get word of this to the Allies. Yeah, there were, of course, the, the Holocaust, as we think of it, with the, the death camps. I mean, it's not to belittle what happened before 1942, but before 1942, uh, the Jews had suffered very badly. There had been massacres all through the around the East. But the actual death camps of Treblinka, Sobibor, Auschwitz, uh, and, and, and the various other ones, they had actually set, been set up in 1942, uh, after the the Wannsee Conference, which is quite famous, where uh, Heydrich and others uh, decided what they were going to solve, the final solution, as they called it. But word was coming out, and there were a couple of very brave people who tried to get word out to the to the uh, the Allies, so that they might do something about it, and at least expose what the Nazis were doing. Uh, the idea that the West knew nothing about this until 1945, the end of the war, it just simply isn't true. Word did get out. And the, actually the problem was, of course, there was very little that Roosevelt or Churchill could do about it. And, and sorry, and just going back to Prince Philip, it is quite extraordinary that Hitler had such a a, a high-profile high, a high profile 
homosexual in his I was going to say inner circle, but that might perhaps give a, a, a wrong impression. Although some historians have suggested that perhaps they came close to having a, a homosexual affair. Well, I, 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 I very much doubt that it was an affair, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't attracted to him. Um, I think, I, I, I don't think there's any evidence that Hitler ever had any homosexual affairs. Um, but it doesn't mean that he didn't. He wasn't attracted by the man. I think he was sort of quite an urbane man. Hitler was always sort of fancied himself as a bit of an artist and uh, lover of art, the arts as well, didn't he? He loved the opera, supposedly. Uh, and that was certainly... Uh, Prince Philip von Hesse certainly fitted the bill there. He was a, a lover of the arts. So he could have talked about stuff other than the war with, with him. Uh, I couldn't. I, I, I don't think any. I mean, I, there, there has been I mean, one suggestion that there was some sort of homosexual link between them, but I, I mean, I can't see there's actually any evidence. And evidence is something that you really take very seriously when you're writing these books and you provide uh, notes for them. That do you enjoy that part of it, immersing yourself in the history and then letting your imagination fill in whatever blanks and gaps are there? I do. Um, that's the joy of being a novelist that you can you can uh, you can speculate you can surmise and uh, you can come up with what might have happened um you know i wouldn't describe myself as a historian because i don't do the original research i don't go into the archives and i read masses of history books but it's other but it's the true historians who've actually done a lot of the work i i use their research and I'm glad it's there. So I think the next step then is to send the book to Harry and Meghan and uh, <laughs> uh, make sure that they've set up a Netflix deal for you so that Tom Wilde can be uh, can become a, a star of, of, of screen as well as on the page. I think that's a brilliant idea, Patrick. Yeah, I'll, uh, I've written that. I'll write a handwritten note to Harry and Meghan and, uh, and hopefully they'll fix it for me. Okay, and uh, if they need any any if you need any help at all, talking history will be quite happy to uh, to take part in the in the, in, in the making of it. Great, brilliant! It's another brilliant book by Rory Clements, part of that Tom's Wild series, and I think uh, you'll really enjoy it. A Prince and a Spy, published in hardback by Zafra, the author Rory Clements. And Rory, thanks so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure, thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the Battle of Verdun, and we'll be finding out about the epic conflict at the heart of the First World War. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.